Amen. Good morning, River West Church family. It's, uh, it's great all that are, are joining us online. I'm Pastor Christopher, one of the pastors. I have the joy of getting to open the scriptures as we're continuing our series in Luke's gospel this morning. I just want to encourage you to go ahead and grab a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, grab your Bible as we begin to dive into this incredible gospel story that Luke preserved and passed on to us. As some of you may be aware, at the very outset of the pandemic, way back in March, our family joined with Pastor Adam and Kathy and the McMurray family in welcoming a lab puppy named Huckleberry into our quarantine experience. I don't know at the time why we thought that this would help us weather the pandemic, but we followed the McMurrays in their folly and we purchased a puppy. I think I have a photo of Huckleberry right now. Look at those cute blue eyes right there. He's a lab and a Wymador. He's He was gorgeous. And for a brief moment, when every time I looked in the dog's eyes, there was a promise that this was going to be our COVID comfort puppy. But eight, eight months later, the cuteness factor has actually given way to unbridled chaos in the Kaufman family household. Now, for anyone that has raised a lab puppy before, you know that they're basically clumsy, hyperactive hellions, especially before they're spayed or neutered. So this last week, out of sheer desperation and concern for my wife's sanity, we reached out to our vet and we begged them to, to actually neuter this dog. And so Huckleberry has spent the last week walking around our house sulking and wearing the cone of shame. The cone of shame. You know the cone that I'm talking about. It's the plastic cones that we fix on our pets that impair their vision and keep them from licking or reopening their wounds, all while turning our cats and dogs into hairy little battering rams that just go around the house and cause destruction. This week, there was a moment, I kid you not, where I made eye contact with the dog looking sad and depressed and miserable, and he told me with his sad puppy eyes, he asked a question, when will this ever end? Do you love me? Why is this happening to me? Where for a brief moment as I made eye contact with Huckleberry, I actually thought deep down, I know how you feel. I know how you feel. After another week of skyrocketing cases and heightening restrictions on top of our news stories, which present us with the harsh realities that we are living in these trying times filled with so much anxiety, so much uncertainty, all of these polarizing pressures and a seemingly endless stream of screens and devices for any family that has children, this has been brutal. All of these pressures, polarized perspectives, clamoring for our attention. Some way, doesn't it feel maybe just a little bit like we're all walking around with invisible cones on? 
Personally, I find in this smothered experience that it's actually difficult to lose sight of who God is and his promises in the scriptures as this pandemic drags on and on. And to just be candid with you, if I'm not attentive to my own heart, I notice that I can go through some of my days with a sort of spiritual tunnel vision, fixated on finite things and news stories that leave me emptied of faith and hope, feeling anxious and miserable, sad and depressed, kind of like a dog in a cone. However, this is one of the reasons that I'm actually so grateful, I'm so thankful that we're studying the Gospel of Luke together in this season. You see, the Gospel of Luke, unlike any other gospel, it has the ability, through its intense vision of who Jesus is, of healing our spiritual tunnel vision by opening our eyes to what Jesus and the gospel writers called the kingdom of God. An invisible realm where God rules and reigns and is worshipped and obeyed as our world's one and only true and worthy king. The king of glory that Marianne read about. It opens our eyes to this king's glory, who he is and what he's doing in our world. So if you're tuning in today online, I'm so glad that you have made that decision because I believe that the Lord today wants to expand our field of vision and increase our faith by revealing to us who our King is as we're preparing to step into this Advent season. So if you have your Bible, tune with me into the gospel story. We're going to dive into chapter 17, and we're going to start this morning. We're only going to take a look this morning at two verses, verses 20 and 21. We're going to hone in on these rich verses in Luke's gospel. This is God's word. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Of the 80 places where the kingdom of God is mentioned in the New Testament, almost half of them, 35 to be exact, occur in Luke's gospel, which leads some scholars to actually refer to Luke's gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. You see, the kingdom of God, it was so central to not only Luke's understanding, but all the gospels, gospel writers, their understanding of what Jesus came to announce and accomplish through his life and death, resurrection and ascension, that we're going to devote as a church community the next two Sundays to unpacking and exploring the central motif and theme. And although the kingdom wasn't something, isn't something that we can observe, as Jesus says, with our naked eyes, Jesus went around claiming that he was sent 
by God the Father to bring God's kingdom to bear on our broken world. And that through his life and death, resurrection, that the kingdom had come. It was this announcement that prompted the exchange and dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees in the two verses that we saw this morning in Luke chapter 17. So as Jesus is going around and proclaiming the kingdom of God has come, the Pharisees approach Jesus asking, when is the kingdom coming then, Jesus? Where is it? Why can't we see it? And Jesus, in response, will say, and we're going to see this, that the kingdom of God, it has come, but not in ways that you expected it to come. Not in ways that you expected or anticipated. You see, what we're going to see this morning that Jesus is going to reveal to us in this passage is he's going to address some of the misconceptions that the religious leaders had about God's kingdom that many Christians still hold to today by revealing and clarifying three things. So if you're taking notes, here's what Jesus is going to reveal to us this morning. The nature of the kingdom, the timing of the kingdom, and finally the hope of the kingdom. The nature, the timing, and the hope of God's kingdom. The first thing that Jesus reveals to us and to the religious leaders through this exchange in Luke 17 is the nature of the kingdom or what the kingdom of God truly is. Now, when we come to the Bible, the central story that runs throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament and ties this grand narrative together is the truth that the creator God who reigns over all things has chosen a people, Israel, to rule as their king. However, time after time, as we read the Bible story, God's chosen people, they reject him as king and they choose to call the shots for themselves. Appointing unjust kings in their own image and becoming a wicked, oppressive nation as a result. And as the biblical story unfolds chapter after chapter, everything unravels as they reject God as king and all hope seems lost for Israel. Until God promises to send a righteous king, a descendant of David, who would be a king like David, but a truer and better king, an anointed king called the Messiah, who would come and restore Israel, rolling back sin's curse, and usher in an everlasting kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice. Now, all of Israel's hopes and prayers, it rested on the arrival of this kingdom. So when Jesus went around proclaiming, the time is fulfilled, the wait is over, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. 
the gospel or this good news that I'm declaring, it caused a stir. Because Christ was claiming that he was fulfilling every dream, every hope, every promise that Israel longed for. But as the religious leaders and most people saw Jesus, he didn't fit in the box that they had mentally placed and were expecting the Messiah to fit in. You see, people in Jesus' day were expecting an earthly political kingdom that would come through a Messiah that would be a military figure, somebody that was mighty enough to overthrow Roman enemies and restore the nation of Israel into glory, into the mighty superpower that it once was. And so as the religious leaders are looking at Jesus, in their mind, in their heart, he doesn't look anything like a king. In fact, later on in another gospel in John chapter 18, Jesus is standing before Pilate, an emissary of Rome, who's seen his fair share of kings. And he will ask Jesus, so you're a king, are you? And Jesus will tell him, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And if my followers were of this world, then they would be fighting for me. You would see riots in the streets, but I'm not that kind of king. And I didn't come to simply bring a physical, natural kingdom that you could observe with your eyes. I'm not the kind of king you're used to seeing. That's the sense of what Jesus is saying when he tells the religious leaders the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. That's what Jesus is trying to drive home to us and to the religious leaders. He's saying, the kingdom that I came to bring, it isn't a political, earthly kingdom you can observe or recognize with your naked eye. Rather, it's an unseen, spiritual kingdom that can only be experienced and entered into by faith. This truth is what drives Jesus' exchange with another religious leader named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We see that Jesus is trying to clarify for Nicodemus that he is not the kind of king that the religious leaders and the people of Israel were expecting. And look at what Jesus says about his kingdom to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, he tells Nicodemus, Now, there was a man named of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, John tells us, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs, these things we can see, that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
So in order to see the kingdom of God, to be able to observe it, it actually takes, according to Jesus, the miracle of spiritual birth. You have to be regenerated to have eyes to see God's kingdom. Apart from Christ, you can't say, look, there it is. I see it. I recognize it. It actually takes a miracle. And the Pharisees, they failed to discern this kingdom that Jesus came to offer because they failed to see that Jesus was the king. He didn't look like the king that they expected to come, but he was the king of kings and lord of lords. And he had not come to actually bring a kingdom that would come from the outside in, but rather a kingdom that would come from the inside out. He came to establish his kingdom, not just on earth, but in our own hearts and within us. That is why Jesus tells us in this passage that the kingdom of God is in your midst. The Greek term entos that's translated in your midst in our Bibles literally can be translated inside. In its only other occurrence in the New Testament, this term actually is used in Matthew chapter 23, verse 26, to describe the inside of a cup, which is why most translations have a footnote that cues our attention that this Verse can be translated, the kingdom of God is within you. And both of these things are true. Then in Jesus, the kingdom is in our midst, but it is also a kingdom where Jesus can rule and reign and establish his kingdom within us. And friends, when Jesus comes to reign, over our hearts, and the kingdom comes within us, it disrupts everything and transforms every element of who we are. You know, famous writer Leo Tolstoy, I ran into his conversion story recently and was moved by the change he experienced when he came to faith in Christ. Tolstoy, he was born into a wealthy, aristocratic family, and he established himself as an early age as a writer who was especially gifted, beginning to publish his first novels in his 20s. However, as he received recognition and accolades and fame for many of the novels, like War and Peace that he published, he began to be seized by a deep sense that life is meaningless and futile. It was not death itself that actually horrified Tolstoy, but a sense that life had no apparent meaning or hope after death. This experience haunted him and became even more forcibly the driving factor of his life. At his lowest point, he actually even contemplated suicide. But then came a spiritual breakthrough in Leo Tolstoy's life. He observed that the, the peasants around him, that he hadn't spent much time alongside, 
because of his upbringing in a wealthy family, he noticed that a lot of peasants and those that were poor seemed to approach suffering and trials in life with a calm and serenity that was strange to him, but incredibly compelling. Why? How could so many remain calm in the face of suffering and death? And Tolstoy Tolstoy realized that it was faith. In the end, it was the fact that they had faith. So he surrendered his life and became a Christian. Shortly after his conversion, he wrote a book entitled The Kingdom of God Within You. And in it, reflecting on his own conversion to Christianity and his experience, Tolstoy wrote, In the midst of winter, I find within me the invisible summer. In the midst of winter, I find within me the invisible summer. Listen, folks, I know that as we're heading into a winter that is trying and brutal, only Jesus, by bringing his kingdom, can bring a summer of hope and faith within us. If you believe that, say amen somewhere online. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the king of kings, and he's come to bring his kingdom within. Okay, so the second point moving through this passage that Christ reveals to us is the timing of the kingdom. After Opening our eyes to the nature of the kingdom, Jesus shows us something shocking about the timing of the kingdom or when the kingdom will come. Because that's the question that actually prompts Jesus' response and answer in this passage. In verse 20, we read, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. And it's interesting that the Pharisees, they don't come asking, okay, what is the kingdom of God? or how it will come, their primary concern is when. When will this kingdom come? In asking this, it's, it's a bit more of a tongue-in-cheek question than an honest eschatological question. It's as if they're saying to Jesus, okay, Jesus, if Pilate is still governing in Judea and we're still paying taxes to Rome and everything is a mess, and the temple hasn't been restored, and the glory of the Lord is not covering the waters of, of this earth, and everything is still a hot mess, then when is this so-called kingdom of yours going to come? You see, most Jews of Jesus' day were expecting an immediate kingdom, a kingdom that would arrive in full when the Messiah came. That's why Luke includes a scene later on, a couple chapters ahead that we'll see in a few months. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 11, listen to this. It says that as Jesus' followers heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Immediately. However, as we lay aside our timelines and our expectations of how the kingdom will come, of when it will come, we begin to see that the kingdom of God isn't something that comes immediately and in full during Christ's time on earth. It's both a present reality and a future hope. 
In fact, I have a chart here because this breaks down the structure of the second half of Luke 17. What we see in verses 20 and 21 is that the kingdom of God is a present reality. It has come, as Jesus said. The kingdom of God, it is in our midst. However, as you'll see in the, the remaining verses in this chapter, the kingdom of God is not just a present reality, it's a future hope. So in, in verses 22 through 37, we have this apocalyptic vision that shows us what will happen as Christ returns and the kingdom is consummated on earth. So it's this picture of the kingdom that's coming. God's kingdom is already here, but there's more on the way. Theologians refer to this as the already but not yet nature of Christ's kingdom, or the fancy term in theological circles is inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology. And while this might sound like a topic that has little relevance or bearing or practical application to our lives in the real world, let me tell you why this truth matters so critically right now in 2020, in this moment right here today. Eschatology, the study of end times, is not about charts and graphs, or end-time predictions. It's primarily about the problem of evil and suffering and how this problem will be solved. Eschatology is, is about how we deal with the harsh realities of our fallen world. In this sense, everyone has an eschatology. The believer, the atheist, the agnostic, the Buddhist, everyone has to give an account for how evil is going to be accounted for and if there really is such a thing as a happy ending and a resolution on the other side of our hurting world. So the real question is not whether you have an eschatology or a framework that makes sense out of life and suffering. The real question is whether yours leads to hope or despair. I want you to take a look at a passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at how Peter, after spending so many years with Jesus and hearing that the kingdom had come and been announced and hearing these teachings, this good news of how one day God would send his king again and everything would be resolved. Look at what Peter says in his gospel in chapter 1, in verses 3 to 7. Peter writes in his epistle, not his gospel, he says this. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope that we sung about this morning through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed 
in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I wonder what would happen, folks, with Thanksgiving just around the corner, if, if we just shut down our news feeds and our inputs that don't always actually bring actually a perspective of hope, so often it's actually a perspective of hopelessness and despair. What if just for a season, we shut off those inputs that are making us so anxious, and we actually just read First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 7, and we just prayed, Lord, increase my faith. I pray that this perspective right here that allowed Peter to rejoice in the midst of fiery trials. He wrote this epistle to a church that was facing persecution, that was being scattered, and people were actually quarantined in their homes. What if we just prayed this and said, Lord, this is what I need. I need this, this hope. How much that would change the disposition of our own, our own hearts and make us people of hope. You know, friends, in a year that has tested so many of our hopes and expectations with fire, there's this scene in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings that I've been reflecting on recently. You probably know it. It's a scene after Gandalf has, has died, and in the story, all hope seems lost. And after, after Sam... And Frodo, they make their way to Mount Doom and, and the ring is, is destroyed. Sam, who almost loses his life, he wakes up from his sleep and he's surprised and shocked that he's alive. And then he sees Gandalf. And his face lights up and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Friends, this is the reason that Jesus went around announcing that the arrival of God's kingdom was good news of great joy for all people. No matter what fiery trials 2020 and beyond brings, there's a day coming when everything sad will come untrue. And Jesus will reign and there will be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more social distancing. Everything will be healed and restored when our risen king returns. Which brings us to the final thing in truth that Christ reveals to us in this passage, and it is the hope of the kingdom. 
In the end, the hope of the kingdom of God, it has less to do with what the kingdom is or when it will come, but rather it hinges on who will bring this kingdom to pass. Who is this king of glory? With strength and ability and might and power, who is able to bring this kingdom to pass? And in Luke 17, we see that there is one who came to bring the kingdom of God into the mess of our world, and it's King Jesus. Again, in verse 21, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The reason that Christ could say this is because the King of kings and Lord of lords was in their midst. That these religious leaders, although they didn't have spiritual eyes to see it, they were in the company of the King of kings, Jesus himself. 